they wouldn't necessarily want to find conclusive answers to very contentious cases. Because if they did that, that would not only harm their legitimacy as courts, but could also throw a wrench into the international negotiations process by challenging the legitimacy of the international legal system as a whole. Climate litigation may or should underscore how some minorities will suffer, technically are suffering already, uh, more dire consequences of climate change than the general population. Young people, women, native and indigenous populations, the elderly. Do you think, do you both think that we're asking courts too much or that we should not be asking courts at all for a solution in relation to the climate emergency? From Queen Mary University of London, I am Dr. Tibisai Morgandi, an Associate Professor in International Energy Law at the School of Law, where I teach courses in energy and climate law. At Queen Mary, I also chair the Climate Emergency Working Group, an interdisciplinary group delving into the various facets of the climate emergency and working towards sustainable solutions. And I'm Dr. Caterina Gennaioli, an associate professor in environmental economics at the School of Business and Management. I contribute as a member to the Climate Emergency Working Group and at the School of Business, we are about to launch an exciting master in environmental analytics. And this is Climate Game Changers, a podcast from the Climate Emergency Working Group where we bring together our academic disciplines and dissect two hot topics in climate solutions. In this episode, we ask the burning question, can climate litigation be a game changer for the fight against climate change? Is climate litigation a solution? Or is it a distraction, diverting attention from the real solution? Hi, Caterina. Hi, Tibisai. So here we are at Soho Radio recording our first episode. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> well, I'm nervous too. We start with a really trending topic, climate litigation, which is growing exponentially by the day. I was reading a report from the United Nations Environment Program and the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, which stated that the total number of climate change court cases has more than doubled since 2017, from almost 900 cases in 2017 to over 2,000 cases in 2022. These numbers are impressive, don't you think? I know that you economists love numbers. Well, I know that you lawyers love puzzles. Uh, well, as Jeremy Bentham said, the power of the lawyer is the uncertainty of the law. I definitely prefer the certainty of data. And uh, I really agree these numbers are impressive. And uh, as an economist, I'm eager to learn from our guests whether climate litigation is actually changing the incentives of large emitters and leading to better decision making. Well, let's find out. Let's get to our guests. I'm very pleased to welcome today's guests, Dr. Carolina Arlota, Associate Research Scholar at Columbia Law School and non-resident fellow at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, and Arif Shams, a PhD candidate in international law at UCL, University College London. His research focus includes international environmental law and climate change. 
So it's great to have you both in the studio today. Although in your case, Carolina, you're joining us from the States. So thanks a lot for agreeing to an early start. Um, what What is the time over there? Thanks, Tibisai. It's quite early indeed, but I hope I can still convey my excitement as I join you, Katerina, Aref, and this amazing team work behind the scenes. Uh, I should say behind the mics. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, and it's never too early to discuss climate change. Huh? Um, well, I'm very happy to have you both on this podcast, delving into the heart of climate litigation and discussing together whether climate litigation can be a real game changer or is rather a distraction. But before I get too much into it, Aref, why don't you start and tell us a bit about yourself and your international background? Thank you, Tibisai, and thank you, Katerina. I'm Iranian, uh, but I also partially grew up in New Zealand, where I also did my undergraduate law degree. After that, I moved to Geneva, where I studied and worked for a little while. And now I'm in London doing my PhD in international law. Well, that's pretty international. But Carolina, you're the same. You're also very international. Thanks, Tibisai. Thanks, Katerina, for this distinguished opportunity. Yes, I am Brazilian and I've been recently, for the last 10 years, roughly been living in the U.S. So in the interest of full disclosure, I, uh, I've been a previous attorney for Petrobras, the state-controlled energy company. Well, nowadays we say energy company, kind of like <laughs> ultimate Greenwashing slash green wishing. Um, it used to be an oil company. Right. Simply put. Um, I'm also a New York attorney. So I have this common law, civil law background and this international litigator practice as well as now academic practice. Well, that's fantastic. And I think I couldn't have chosen better guests for this episode. As you bring in perspective from so many different parts of the world where climate litigation is very active and in fact is growing exponentially by the day. And Carolina, you are based at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University in New York. And for our audience and for those who don't know the Sabin Center, you and your colleagues have been doing for years a fantastic work in tracking all climate litigation around the world and making the cases available on your website. Uh, but can you tell us a bit about domestic litigation in the U.S., which is the country where most cases have been brought so far, and in particular about the Montana case, which has made headlines this summer. Definitely. So the U.S. has lived up to its reputation of being a litigation-prone society. Um, and the Montana case is a landmark climate ruling that was issued August of 2023. And it was a case filed by a group of 16 children and teenagers, uh, which is a phenomenon that we've it's becoming relatively more common when it comes to climate litigation. And when it comes to Montana, I think there are two main takeaways in this case. So first, um, the Montana State Court recognized that climate change is anthropogenic, or put it simply, human-made, meaning it's not a natural variability, as the court specifically ruled. This may seem obvious, but it's particularly controversial in the U.S. 
Second, the ruling was based on Montana's constitution. Uh, and as you may know, uh, each of the 50 states in the U.S. has its own constitution where they may have their own Bill of Rights. And Montana, New York, and Pennsylvania, they have similar provisions, but Montana's Constitution Article 9 specifically provides for the right to a clean and healthful environment. The Montana State Court ultimately determined that state officials must take into account greenhouse gas emissions and climate impacts when authorizing new state projects. The decision ultimately became a major development when it comes to the topic of climate attribution uh, because it linked uh, Montana's emission to global climate change, highlighting that young people are already suffering the consequences of climate change, more specifically changes to the local environment, as well as physical and mental harms. Well, that sounds really like a resounding success. The first point you're making, that climate change is anthropogenic. I mean, we seem to be stating the obvious, as you said, but it's interesting how this was important and how it was important that a court said that in the U.S. And the second point that you're making, linking the emissions of a state in the U.S. to global climate change, that also seems to me as a really important contribution that these court made. So I'm not surprised that this case really, you know, has become pretty much well-known all over the world. Now, Aref, what about climate litigation in other jurisdictions? So I was looking at the numbers on the Global Climate Change Litigation Database of the Sabin Center, and I saw that outside of the U.S., there have been so far over 700 cases against governments and about 200 cases against either corporations or individuals. And I think um, some of the audience will have heard that the Netherlands, for example, has been very active. You know, there has been a lot of climate litigation in the Netherlands, both against the Dutch government, but also against corporations, in particular Royal Dutch Shell, which is an Anglo-Dutch multinational corporation. So can you tell us a bit about how successful has been climate litigation in the Netherlands? Yeah, sure. And uh, first of all, thank you, Carolina, for that great discussion on the Montana case, uh, which was very interesting for me as well to read about as it came out. And you're you're right, Tibisai. The Dutch have been very busy and they've been quite successful. And two cases, as you mentioned, are key. One is the Urganda case, which was decided in 2019, where the courts decided that the Dutch government should commit to reduce its carbon emissions by 25% by the year 2020. And that was a very interesting decision, particularly because the court set a specific target Mm -hmm. for a government to reach. And then we have the other case, which was another watershed moment, uh, the more recent uh, Royal Dutch Shell case in 2021, where the Dutch courts held that multinational corporation accountable, ordering it to reduce its global carbon emissions by... 45% Mm. by 2030. Wow. And what's really interesting is that they referred not only to emissions from Shell's operations, but also emissions from the products that Shell sells, which obviously includes a lot of oil oil and gas and petrol. So that was a very uh, important decision as well. 
Very interesting to look at these different jurisdictions and how climate litigation has evolved in both. Um, but I would like to go back to Carolina and to domestic climate litigation in the U.S. So can we say that domestic climate litigation has been affecting the discourse on climate change in the U.S.? Yes, Teresa, this is such a complex question. And I think there are two main points that I would like to highlight. The first would be that domestic litigation uh, may affect the importance of scientific evidence when it comes to settling. And hopefully, I'm Brazilian, I'm always very hopeful. <laughs> so once for all, the issue that climate change is real, human-made and urgent, right? So the U.S. has prominently climate denial parcel of its population and the fossil fuels lobby borrowed the tactics of the tobacco industry aiming at breaking uh, the causal link between increased temperatures and greenhouse gas emissions, uh, I should say greenhouse gas saturation levels in the atmosphere. So according to this line of reasoning, the earth will be warming naturally with no human caused increase in the temperature due to fossil fuels uh, that ultimately would lead to greenhouse gas emissions. Therefore, the first main consequence of the discourse on climate change is to reduce and eventually, again, quite hopefully, uh, to preclude climate change denialism, right? Um, and the second point that I would like to highlight is the fact that climate litigation may or should, from an innovative perspective, underscore how some minorities will suffer, technically are suffering already, uh, more dire consequences of climate change than the general population. So um, our previous question was about the Montana case. So young people, women, native and indigenous populations, the elderly, racial and ethnic minorities, those either because of their lifestyle choices and culture or because of access to economic resources, they will, they will particularly suffer the, the hardest when it comes to the climate impact. Therefore, it may uh, highlight uh, climate just injustices locally. Mm. Carolina, that's really an interesting point. Uh, and uh, I would like to bring here an international dimension. So could climate litigation potentially exacerbate uh, existing inequalities between countries by creating, for instance, an incentive for large emitters to move to countries with weaker institutions, leading to... Uh, a so-called carbon leakage, you know, driven by climate litigation. Do you think, you know, is there a risk there? Definitely, Katerina. Thanks for highlighting that risk. Uh, this is a concern when it comes to international law, broadly speaking. Um, I do want to share that despite such risk, there's some reason for optimism uh, because the Paris Agreement, the FAR, to when we talk about national determined contributions to each country to de define their own targets when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions generally. Uh, and also from an international perspective, this precedence of previous success, uh, particularly when it comes to leakage and the not existence ultimately of significant leakage uh, in the case of the ozone protocol, the so-called Montreal protocol on substances that may deplete the ozone layer. So um, of course it remains to be seen and leakage is a concern 
But if the international laws are tight enough uh, and Despite climate mitigation, it's expected uh, that leakage would not be as significant. Arif, what do you think about carbon leakage? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Katerina, and it's, a, it's an important point that you bring up because this has happened in the past with other industries where the industry has moved to countries with less stringent human rights protections, for instance. But I agree with Carolina. I think, I think there is room for hope and optimism. Uh, especially because when we look at developing countries, uh, we see that in many instances, they're not following the developed world. They're leading um, on many issues, uh, environmental issues. So off the top of my head, I can think of the status of Pachamama, Mother Earth, in Latin American constitutions, or how in India, recently, there has been a grant of legal status to rivers. And so I think these are examples that show developing countries can very much lead the way. So there is, I, I agree with Carolina, there is room for optimism. We're talking about developing countries, and this brings me uh, to another question that I wanted to ask you, Arif, and this is litigation before international courts where developing countries are taking a prominent role. We have seen that litigation before international courts has gained momentum in 2023, and we have now three recent requests for advisory opinions on climate change before three different international tribunals. Um, but before we get into the substance of that, out of perhaps, can you clarify what we mean when we talk about advisory opinions and what is their value? Yeah, sure. So these are requests made by international bodies, for instance, the United Nations General Assembly, requests that then they make from international courts, such as the International Court of Justice in mm -hmm. The Hague. And what essentially they're doing is they're asking for, for the court's opinion on a legal matter. And even though these advisory opinions are not binding, legally binding, as they would be, as the court's decision would be in contentious proceedings before countries. Right. So even though they're not legally binding, they still have a lot of authority because they're coming from a central legal institution, from a very authoritative legal institution. So they're quite valuable and important. Yes, and I think it's important to mention that otherwise it, it sounds as if an advisory opinion doesn't really have legal weight when in fact it does. And so can you tell us a bit more about, you know, these three different requests for advisory opinions? Why do we have three different requests? Why, um, you know, are different stakeholders going before different international tribunals? It seems that when it rains, it indeed does pour. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's really the case in the UK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it seems that we have these different proceedings because each of them is targeting a different facet of, of climate change. So when we look at them, the, the three advisory proceedings that we're thinking of are first, the one that is being brought before the International Court of Justice uh, in The Hague, as I mentioned. And that's very much the most important advisory proceeding from an international law perspective, given that the ICJ is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. And right. given that the request for the advisory opinion had to go through the UN General Assembly. So there's quite a lot of weight there. And it's a more generally formulated question that the General Assembly has asked from the ICJ. And then we have a more specialist tribunal, the International Tribunal for Law of the Sea in Hamburg, Germany. And that advisory uh, request, that, that request for an advisory opinion, primarily deals with the law of the sea questions. And that's because 
this was brought by a group of small island nations. And their questions focused on ocean warming, sea level rise, ocean acidification, questions that are key to small island nations and also within the purview of an international tribunal for law of the sea. And then last but not least, we have the Inter-American Court um, for the, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in San Jose, Costa Rica. And that request was made by Chile and Colombia. And that really focuses on how human rights obligations in the American Convention for Human Rights those human rights obligations, how they could have um, an impact on climate obligations. So that's why we have these different mm. different proceedings. They, they tackle different issues. So different tribunals, different focus. Um, but what do you think, what do you make of these advisory proceedings? Are they changing, in your view, the discourse on climate change in the international law space? I mean, one could argue that they have already changed some things in the discourse. And I think international climate litigation can be a strong tool to complement international negotiations and also domestic legislation. And the way it does this is it, it, it forces the hands of governments and legislators um, through awareness raising and mobilizing the society. And this certainly is a reasonable argument, seeing as we're sitting down here and we're talking about climate litigation because of these uh, proceedings. And also what we have with these advisory proceedings is a new forum, courts being a new forum, mm. to, to protest, to bring public attention, and to put pressure on political agendas and political actors. And then also, the, the final point I wanted to bring up is how these proceedings have already been successful to put a human face on climate change. This isn't necessarily limited to the international cases. We also see it in the domestic cases. We were talking about the Montana case, for instance. We were talking about the youth residents of the state of Montana. Or we are talking about countries like Vanuatu. Um, and so suddenly we're not thinking about climate change as relating to impersonal, natural systems. We're thinking about real communities and real people. Right. And I think I think you're right. We can't determine success just by looking at the outcome of a case. Um so we're seeing this spike in climate litigation, but what do we make of it? I mean, is is climate litigation the way to go in your view, Carolina? Yes. To be say, I think it is one, two. So it's one avenue. It's one way to go uh, out of many. So climate litigation as a tool to maximize global greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Right. So, yes, you and I have highlighted previously that it puts a face in the damage and the harm that communities are suffering. We can locate Vanuatu. We can even countries that we might not be aware that would that are facing such an existential threat. Right. So in that sense, uh, even though if it's it may not be the perfect equalize in terms of imbalance of power, it is still a significant one in terms of bringing action, right? It brings awareness about ongoing domestic injustice as well. Um, so it may trigger thought-provoking inquiries about colonialism, right of self-determination, overall empowerment of traditionally marginalized segments of our society, and of course, of countries. And one of the issues when it comes to international law is that each country has the same vote, the same weight in theory. Of course, in practice, it's not like that. But, you know, if you think about the United Nations, that's uh, how it should uh, perceive in terms of votes. 
So given the power asymmetries that Carolina was talking about, uh, so do you think climate litigation could increase local tensions between different groups by making, saying, underlying economic and political tension and conflict salient among the population? And I'm thinking here, for instance, at indigenous communities filing a case against logging companies. So could this... You know, climate litigation action create tension with local people who actually benefit from this economic activity. So I think that question takes us to the core of what the climate issue um, is. So what I call the climate issue is a polycentric issue. It's a polycentric problem. And when we're dealing with a polycentric problem, something that could be a solution for part of a community could very well constitute or create a problem for another part of the community. And so this is the this is the problem with climate change. We have a very complicated web of interconnected actors and stakeholders and it's very difficult to to address a specific industry without affecting the interests of other parts of the community. So Arif you're talking about polycentricity, which I think is the core of a recent article that you wrote where you express a certain degree of skepticism on the role of climate litigation in fixing the climate crisis. Can you tell us a bit more about this article? Sure, yeah. No, my, my skepticism is mainly targeted um, at international courts and mm. international cases. And as much as I'm happy to see these cases being brought before international courts, I think it's a bit of a logical leap to say, just because we are faced with very serious challenges, that international courts and tribunals are necessarily entities that can act to save us. Mm. And so what I was talking about, about polycentricity before, the issue is when international courts are dealing with very difficult problems, a lot of times what what they'd like to do is to, is to reach a compromise. Now, this compromise is very difficult to be found mm. in a situation where there are diverging, extremely diverging interests between many, many different stakeholders. And so what might happen is for the advisory opinion of a court, of an international court, to kind of become too vague and mm. ineffective when they're trying to find this very, very intricate balance. So that's that's the difficulty. And then the other issue is that international courts aren't super happy to deal with these tough issues, what I call polycentric issues, one example being the climate issue. And in the past, when they've had an opportunity to avoid making decisions on very difficult issues, they have sometimes taken the easy road out. Mm. And that, I argue, is because is because of the lack of legitimacy in comparison with domestic courts. Right. And I actually argue that far from being a failure, this might actually be seen, this could actually be seen, a part of their un- unofficial functions. Mm. Because they wouldn't necessarily want to find conclusive answers to very contentious cases. Because if they did that that would not only harm their legitimacy as courts, Mm. but could also throw a wrench into the international negotiations process by challenging the legitimacy of the international legal system as a whole. So it's, it's a very precarious situation that courts find themselves in. Right, and it's not the first time that international courts are dealing with these issues, right? I'm thinking now of the nuclear uh, advisory opinion before the ICJ. 
I think that's a great example. And that advisory opinion from 1996 shows us how it's so difficult for the court to address a polycentric problem. So the court made a very important contribution, saying that countries do have an obligation not to harm the environment of not only other countries, but also the global environment. And that was very important. But they still couldn't say that nuclear weapons and their use or threats uh, of use was illegal. And so what they said was maybe in very extreme circumstances where the survival of the country is at stake, maybe nuclear weapons could still be legal. And I think it sort of takes us back to that issue with trying to balance interests of stakeholders in a very polycentric problem. On the one hand, we have the interests of the nuclear states, countries. And then on the other hand, we have the interests of all the other countries um, who are worried about very serious damage to, to the earth. And when you're trying to balance such diverging interests, what could end up happening is you could, um, you could end up with a very strange formulation, like we see in that advisory opinion. And so what I worry is something similar could happen in the context of the advisory opinions on climate change. Right. So we have polycentricity as a problem. We have legitimacy as a problem. We have possible political economic tensions that are triggered by climate litigation as a tool. So we see, in a way, the complexity of these issues. To some extent, uh, Carolina was optimistic about the the role of climate litigation. You're a bit more skeptical, but I know you're referring mainly to international courts, whereas Carolina was focusing more on domestic courts. So we have here, I think, highlighted the differences. So this leads me, I think, to the final question that I want to ask you in the interest of time, obviously, because I would love to actually continue this discussion for hours with you. But is climate litigation perhaps then the means rather than the end? Um, so is this just a tool, as Carolina was saying, or is the way to go about fixing the climate emergency? And just, you know, following up on your comments, um, do you think, do you both think that we're asking courts too much or that we should not be asking courts at all for a solution in relation to the climate emergency? I like what you said there, Tibisai, um climate litigation being... It's it's the means, not Mm. the end. And I agree with that. And the reason why I'm a little bit skeptical is is that I'm trying to problematize what lawyers present as the solution. So I'm I'm not trying to insult lawyers. What I'm trying to say is that (laughs) I'm a lawyer. What I'm trying to say is that lawyers, we we approach a problem from our own set of professional skills that we're essentially trying to sell. We're we're a group of professionals. We're trying to sell our skills and and knowledge and services. And so the the way we understand a problem and the way we give solutions is very specific to us. And so I'll I'll give an example, which I I quite like, which is that if there is a, a couple, a married couple, and they're having trouble, they're having problems, and they take their their issues to a marriage counselor versus if they take their issues to a divorce attorney, a divorce lawyer, they're going to receive very, very different advice. And so that's my point. My point is we shouldn't necessarily take the the lawyer's word um, at face value, even though I do agree that there could be a lot of different benefits that could result from climate litigation. Carolina. 
do we end on a on a high note or on a low note? <laughs> well, Clarissa, you're definitely putting me on the spot. Uh, Arif brought such an excellent analysis that will be difficult for me to follow up. But here, I think um, this is where, again, I, I want to be more optimistic, although I agree with all the challenges that Arif excellently highlighted. So I think international courts are also venues that underscore the consequences of climate change, right? So, you know, we have Hawaii facing existential threats that are similar to those of small island nations, such as Vanuatu. Additional benefits when it comes to climate mitigation is the fact that it may settle the consequential issues of climate change, particularly its causes and, you know, its fast approaching dire impacts. Uh, accordingly, the need for immediate and joint action to curb greenhouse gas emissions, particularly the phase out of fossil fuels, um, to the extent that our very own existence is at stake. So this is not very optimistic, but again, it's a common denominator there. So in sum, once courts settle the science behind climate change, overall transaction costs for politicians to enact potentially unpopular environmental and energy regulations may be reduced. Um, so in the absence of climate denialism, for instance, and as awareness about climate change direct impacts increases, it may be less difficult for politicians to curb greenhouse gas emissions, ultimately ending the fossil fuel-based systems of energy and consumption. If I can pick up on two points which you just made, which I think are really important, um, the point on attribution the way in which, as you were mentioning before, the Montana case seems to have sort of settled that question. We now know that emissions caused in one part of the world can contribute to global climate change and therefore anyone's emissions should be reduced because we're talking about a common good and therefore we all have you know, to contribute to the fight against climate change. And the second point that you were making now, you refer back to uh, climate denialism and the way in which, by raising awareness about climate change, in a way politicians have an easier time now when they adopt policies that actually aim to reduce emissions. I think both points are really important and I wonder whether uh, you could just unpack a bit more uh, both of them, because I think this is perhaps one of the major contributions of the U.S. case law, really changing a bit the discourse, both at the U.S. level, but also at the global level on these two points. Thanks for the opportunity to clarify. I think I may have used a bit of a jargon when I use transaction costs, and but I think you summarized it brilliantly when you're saying that it's basically easier for domestic courts in the US, for instance, but actually in any jurisdiction, the argument would go to enact unpopular uh, mm. environmental protection measures, basically measures that aim at reducing greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's you know closing a power plant, whether it's not authorizing a particular exploration of a new oil field that might have direct benefits for that local population, right? So that would make an that would be in theory unpopular. But, you know, to the extent that we there is a consensus about the existence of climate change. So as we mentioned earlier, the anthropogenic changes in the environmental 
environment, not, you know, as I mentioned earlier, not natural variability, as the Montana court this uh, particularly emphasized, uh, it becomes clear not only the importance of the science and hence uh, what we call climate distribution, but also uh, the fact that it's it will be less controversial. And because of so, that will bring an additional incentive. So it might be framed in terms of it will be less difficult that would be one point. And the other point was like, actually, it may bring an incentive for the elected branches, whether the executive or the legislative, to actually uh, engage in actions uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So I think, you know, this is really important because then we see that climate litigation is not just some tool that can deliver concrete positive outcomes for those that actually file the case, but actually can have an overall role in making life easier for politicians when they adopt climate-friendly policies, as well as, you know, raising awareness among the population, as well as, you know, making it easier for those communities that are bringing the case to be supported and also find funding in a way to file their cases. So we're seeing, I think, a number of positive benefits, but I think it was helpful also to hear from RF on where we might need to be careful and to keep in mind that we shouldn't stretch climate litigation too far as to make it the only way to fix the climate crisis. Well, Carolina and RF, it was a pleasure having you on this episode today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure. And that's it for our first episode of Climate Game Changers. In the next episode, we discuss another burning question. Can artificial intelligence be a game changer in the fight against the climate emergency? For now, we want to thank our guests, Dr. Carolina Arlota and Arif Shams, and our producer, Jolene Goffin at Rethink Audio. If you like the episode, please follow us, tell your friends, and let us know what you would like us to discuss in future episodes. We are excited to be bringing the work from the Climate Emergency Working Group Equin Mary into the world of podcasts. And we hope to be back with more episodes in the new year. So stay tuned. I am Dr. Tibisai Morgandi. And I'm Dr. Caterina Gennaioli. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the program.